Chapter the Eighteenth of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Easter Monday. That evening, Jabez, a clear-eyed, open-browed youth in his seventeenth year, upright, well-knit, and firmly built for his age, knocked at the parlour door after Miss Augusta had been sent to bed. There was some trouble on his countenance, as though he was bent on an errand utterly repugnant to him. He was truly sorry to be the means, however remotely, of bringing disgrace on both an old man and a young one. But Simon had led him to the conclusion that if there was little honour in turning informer, there would be absolute dishonesty in keeping silence whilst he saw his master robbed. Yet he hesitated, and lingered with his hand on the handle of the door, after the clear voice of Mr. Ashton had twice invited him to come in. Mr. Ashton, therefore, opened the door, and saw Jabez with a design for a bell-rope tassel in his hand. "'Well, Jabez, what is it? Something special you have to show us?' "'No, sir. I only brought this, lest any of the servants should be curious about my errand here.' Mrs. Ashton, who was reading a romance from Mrs. Edge's circulating library in King Street, lifted up her head at this, and Jabez came in, closing the door. "'Then what is the errand which needs such precaution?' asked Mr. Ashton, resuming his seat and looking up at the clear face of Jabez. "'I think, sir,' and he laid an emphasis on the think, "'I have found out how you are being robbed, and who it is that robs you.' "'You what?' exclaimed Mr. Ashton, placing his hand on the elbows of his chair, and bending forward inquiringly. Jabez repeated his statement, adding, "'I think, sir, some of your putters-out and work-people are in league to defraud you.' Out came Mr. Ashton's snuff-box, down went Mrs. Ashton's romance, whilst Jabez told succinctly how his suspicions had been first aroused, and how they had been confirmed that day. I did not tell my suspicions to Christopher, sir, thinking I had best not interfere, or put the, the, them on their guard until I had spoken to you. I feared lest I should defeat your plans, said Jabez modestly. Just so, Jabez, just so. You were quite right, Jabez, said his master, whilst a shower of snuff fell on neckcloth ends and shirt frills. Yes, quite right, assented Mrs. Ashton with, with customary dignity. A still tongue shows a wise head, but we seldom see an old head on such young shoulders. No active steps were taken for a few days, but Mrs. Ashton was in the warehouse and doubly observant, and Mr. Ashton was also on the alert. They saw enough to convince them that Jabez was correct, and, acting on first impulses, Nadine was again communicated with. From the window of Jabez Clegg's little room, Kit Townley was seen to receive payment from a fringe-weaver for his share of the spoil, and then Nadine, who knew all about it quite well enough before, followed up the clue to a waste-dealer's, who bought at his own price workpeople's waste, that is, warp, weft, silk, etc., remaining after work was completed, and found tradespeople willing enough to repurchase, well knowing that commodities so varied and so far below market value were not honestly come by. Nadine, big and blustering when there was nothing to be gained by silence, was for hauling the whole lot off to prison. The two kits, the waste dealer, and sundry work people, 
and the criminal code was a very terrible dispensation then. But Mr. Ashton was more merciful. He was for milder measures. Besides, Mr. Townley was an old friend of his, and for the sake of the father, he forbore to drag the son into a court of justice, and unless he prosecuted all, he could not prosecute any. The sight of Nadine and his rough men, in their red-cuffed, red-collared brown coats, with their staves and handcuffs ready for use, was sufficiently terrifying. The distress of old Mr. Townley was painful to witness. As for Kit himself, he seemed less conscious of his guilt than ashamed of being found out, openly declaring that he did no more than was customary, and no more than old Christopher, who had led him into it, had done for years. The old hypocrite went down on his knees, with many whining protestations of his innocence, but finding proof too strong, he made a clean breast of it, and on learning that through the generosity of his employer he was about to escape prosecution, which would have led to transportation, he begged piteously to be allowed to retain the situation he had held for so many years. "'No, Kit,' said Mrs. Ashton, "'there is no rogue like an old rogue.' You have not only robbed us yourself, but taught others the trick. Think well you have escaped the New Bailey, the Manchester and Salford prison. At that period the constable who apprehended a criminal received a bonus on each conviction, called blood money. So large a proportion of felons were executed, and Nadine, gruff and uncourteous even to his superiors, was disposed to resist Mr. Ashton's amiable interference with the course of justice. A liberal douceur from the elder Mr. Townley's well-stocked purse was potent to allay his zeal. His runners were dismissed, and his friend, the waste-dealer, had a longer lease. The clearance of rogues paved the way for honest men, besides suggesting measures to prevent like embezzlement in future. The Ashtons rightly thought that the best way to reward Jabez was to serve his friends. A situation as putter out to the weavers was offered to Tom Hume, Mr. Ashton having had his eye on him for some time, and old Simon, being sent for, went home delighted with commendations of Jabez, and the consciousness that the only barrier to Bessie's marriage was now removed, and that through the foundling's instrumentality. The only bar, that is, save the double fees of Lent, and the ill luck supposed to follow a couple united during the penitential forty days. Tom put up the bands, however, and Easter Monday was chosen as the day of days for the ceremony. Tom Hume's parents had been married on an Easter Monday, Simon had been tied to his wife on an Easter Monday, Jabez had been made a blue-coat boy on an Easter Monday, and apprenticed on an Easter Monday. It was consequently an anniversary to be observed and respected. Early marriages prevail amongst the class made early self-dependent by earning their own living. Matt Cooper had long been a grandfather, Molly and his three eldest boys having been married and settled. A brisk young butcher coming to the tannery with hides had met Martha, the other girl, bearing her father's dinner, and being so taken with her sharp active gait and saucy answers that he proposed to transfer her to his shop beyond Ancoats Lane Canal Bridge, and to make his offer more palatable, suggested an amalgamation of the two households, and to take the youngest lad, Matthew, aged fourteen, as his apprentice. So ardent and promising a lover was not to be despised, 
Martha did not say no, and Matt, beginning to stoop in the shoulders, rejoiced at the prospective haven for his declining years. It was arranged that they should be married along with Bess and Tom Hume, and so Matthew Cooper went with the Cleggs to church, not as a gallant bridegroom, but more suitably to give away a bride. And now, how shall I describe the scene at the old church on Easter Monday, to convey anything like an idea to modern readers, unacquainted with the locality, the period, and the habits of the people? It must be borne in mind that registrar's offices did not exist, that there was no marrying at dissenting chapels, that few, if any, churches were licensed for the solemnization of matrimony, and that the collegiate parish church of Manchester was the nucleus towards which the marriageable inhabitants of all the surrounding townships and villages turned at the most important epoch of their lives. The venerable pile, now being doctored by restorers, was set as it were in a ring fence of old houses, with an inner ring of low wall encircling the churchyard, which, as gravestones testified, had once extended to the very house steps. As I have elsewhere said, the path between this wall and the houses was known as Half Street, a portion of which, containing Mrs. Clue's old shop, still remains. And did I enumerate all the public houses in this ring face which offered accommodation to wedding and christening parties, only a future generation of antiquaries would thank me, and even they might doubt the facts set down in a work of fiction. Nevertheless, on Easter Monday not one of these hostelries had a spare foot of room. Every window and every door stood wide open. Men and women, gaily dressed as their own means or friendly wardrobes would allow, went in and out, filled rooms and passages, leaned from the windows with ribbons flying loose, or with pipes and ale-pots in their hands, calling to their friends below, whilst rival fiddlers, almost every party having its own, scraped away in anything but harmony. Horses and carts blocked up every avenue, and the churchyard itself was thronged with an excited crowd. Only the parties immediately interested were admitted into the sacred edifice, but to reach the doors they had to force their way, and could only return in couples through a dense avenue of humanity, amid a shower of jests, many not the most seemly. Bess wore only a white cambric gown, and a straw bonnet crossed with white ribbon, both of which Mrs. Ashton had provided. But somewhere in Tom's peninsula campaigns he had picked up a bright-coloured scarf, which made her glorious to behold, and the envy of many a country bride. His old uniform had been kept for the occasion, and they looked grand together. But the quiet content on Bessie's face was better than the grandeur. Nat Bradshaw, the butcher bridegroom, was of a jovial turn, and nothing would do but the whole double wedding party, Jabez included, should turn into the ringer bells to drink health and happiness to the brides, and give them spirit to go through the ceremony befittingly. Bess and Martha hung back, blushing like peonies, but Nathaniel was not to be gainsaid, and in they went, and whilst the bride sipped, he quaffed and pressed the others to do likewise. At length Jabez, who had been brought up temperately, cried out that they would be too late. Parson Brooks had been gone into the church half an hour. There was a general rush from the room, and in the scramble to get first the party got separated, 
Matthew pulling his daughter along and leaving the bridegroom to follow. They elbowed their way into the church and reached the choir just as Joshua pronounced the benediction over some twenty couples closely packed around the altar. Then there was a jostle and a scramble for first kisses, amidst which rose the rough voice of the chaplain. "'Now clear out, clear out. Do your kissing outside. There are other folks waiting to be wed. Do you think I want to be kept here all day, tying up fools?' That instalment of the married having been hustled away to sign the church books with their attendant witnesses, Joshua called out impatiently to the waiting couples, amongst which were Bess and Tom. "'Come, come! How long do you mean to keep me standing here? Do you intend to be married or not?' "'Oh, it's thee, is it?' to Bess. "'Well, thou's waited long enough. See that you make her a good husband,' to Tom. "'Kneel down here,' and he placed them, not roughly, almost in the centre of the altar, pulling others to their knees beside them with scant ceremony. "'What do you want here?' in his harshest tones he asked a very youthful-looking couple. "'To be wed?' was the prompt answer of the young man. "'Ugh!' grunted the parson. "'What's the world coming to? "'I used to marry men and women. "'Now I marry children. "'Here, you silly babies, take your places.' Another file of candidates for matrimony being ranged, after some pushing and pulling, in pairs round the altar, Joshua took his book, and the service began. So long as it was general, all went tolerably smoothly. Women and men alike were too bashful and confused to know much what was said, or what they responded, and certainly they rarely looked in each other's faces. At length there was a slight stir and a whispering from the quarter where Matt Cooper stood beside his daughter. "'Silence there!' roared Joshua, in a voice which set a row of hearts in a flutter, and there was silence. But he had come to the troth plight, and again the same commotion was apparent as he approached the Coopers. "'What's wrong here?' he demanded pausing before Martha, who was all in a tremble. "'My lass is waiting for her mon,' answered Matthew from behind. "'Ah! Uh, I can't wait for laggards. Here, you,' addressing Tom Hume. "'Answer for him. What's his name?' to Martha. "'Nathaniel,' she faltered. "'I, Nathaniel, take thee, Martha, to be my,' he went on, insisting on the response of Tom, who looked aghast at the prospect of marrying the wrong woman and being told to pair as they went out, as Joshua had summarily adjusted a like mistake heretofore, or, what was worse, of being saddled with two wives. On imperturbable Joshua went with the ceremony, bent on a marriage by proxy. His experience having taught him that women of the working class, as a rule, took charge of their wedding rings, he asked Martha for hers, which was duly produced, and without further ado, he directed Tom Hume to place it on Martha's finger, as he had previously put one on Bess's, and with the same formula. They had got as far as, with this ring I thee wed, when the missing bridegroom came in hot haste through the side door into the chancel, closely followed by Jabez, who had been in quest of him. He was flushed with ale and excitement, but was clear-headed enough to perceive what was going forward, and to the chaplain's chagrin, plucked the young woman back from the altar and his proxy, and the ring rolled to the ground. Then ensued an altercation between the butcher and Joshua Brooks, the latter insisting that what was good enough for princes 
might be good enough for him, and refusing to go over the ceremony again. But an apparitor drew the tardy bridegroom aside, and whispered to him a few mollifying words, whilst Joshua concluded the ceremonial, and then hurried from the altar with hardly a look at either Jabez or Simon as he passed out of the chancel, chafed and angry. Another clergyman took his place, and in the next group, Nat Bradshaw and the half-married Martha took theirs. The lost ring had a substitute provided by the clerk for such emergencies, and this time they were as surely married as Bess and Tom had been. Jabez had found the truant bridegroom at the Ringer Bells, oblivious of the flight of time or of his party. The story having got wind, there was a general rush in their direction. "'Ears the mon were too late to be wed. Tak care thee wife hasna two husbands. Who's getting two husbands already? See, thou's tied up greatly, lass. Thou'rt a pratty feller and much more which might have provoked a man less good-humoured in his cups. As it was, the new brides clung to their husbands, half afraid of those noisy demonstrations, and were not sorry to get clear of the crowd and thread their way to Ancoats Lane, where the thriving butcher, assisted by Mrs. Ashton, Mrs. Clues and Mrs. Clough, had prepared a dinner which bore no proportion to the short commons of everyday fare. End of chapter the 18th